Let me pray for us and uh, ask God's help uh, with what I think is a, a wonderful ending section of this psalm that we've been looking at uh, for a few weeks now, Psalm 119, and one that I've uh, had great joy in uh, looking at and exploring uh, this week. But I'm also mindful uh, that there's so much in it uh, that we could get lost. So uh, let's pray that God will help us as we look at it together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness, uh, that when you speak, uh, you do not speak thinly, uh, but you speak uh, forever words, that you speak words uh, that speak right to our lives and speak words of deep reality. And so, Father, we pray as we open them together uh, that you would prepare our hearts by your spirit to receive them as we should. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you look for in a friend uh, or in a, a business partner, a work colleague? If, if you were to sort of list a bunch of characteristics of what you would look for in the ideal friend or in the ideal work colleague, what would it be? Or how about uh, in that one special relationship for a guy, what, what would you or did you look for in the perfect girl? For the girls, what would you look for in the perfect guy? I made uh, the fatal mistake of uh, typing that sort of sentence in uh, to Google and uh, got an incredible array of things that people look for. And I I tried to sort of siphon them down to just a few, but uh, in the end I failed uh, to come up with a list. So many different things we look for in the ideal person, the ideal friend, the ideal business partner, the ideal marriage partner. What would you look for? I remember when uh, Liz and I were, were moving towards getting married, one of the things that we had to do as part of the pre-marriage course was this big questionnaire that was supposed to tell us how compatible we were so that then we could resolve our incompatibility and uh, sort it all out before we got married. It was a ridiculous questionnaire. There were so many questions. By the end of it, I think uh, this is why things went so horribly wrong, I, I lost interest at about question 350. I thought there can't possibly be this many things that we have to be compatible on. And eventually we got the uh, results back and we were a lot closer to zero than 100%, uh, far closer than I was expecting or hoping. And at the time I remember thinking, oh, that's rubbish. Uh, We're completely compatible and uh, everything will be perfect. And uh, in lots of ways it is, but uh, as as we've gone along in marriage, you realise just how incompatible two people are. She's had to adjust uh, to endless summer days watching cricket, which I know bores her to tears. Uh, I've had to adjust to the finer points of the music of the Spice Girls. Uh, Fortunately, she's left that behind, but uh, there was a time where I had to adjust to that. She's had to adjust to the fact that I like to stay up late and she's uh, comatose by about 9pm and so somehow we've met in the middle uh, somewhere there. There's all sorts of things that we're incompatible about, but in the end... The one thing that matters is one simple characteristic that I think all friendships, all relationships, all marriages need to have to work, to last, to stick together. Whenever I'm uh, meeting with uh, a couple who are about to get married, that's one of the questions I ask them. What one quality, what one characteristic do you think is going to make this marriage work? What would your answer be? It's all sorts of things that we we would put up that we think need to be there for a successful friendship or a successful relationship. 
But I think the one that stands above them all is one simple word, faithfulness. Faithfulness is what makes a friendship work. Faithfulness is what makes a marriage work. Someone who is utterly consistent, who is faithful, who is a promise keeper, a straight dealer, who is reliable and not just sometimes, always. Someone who lives up to the vows that they have made. They make the vows on their wedding day and then they deliver on them day after day, year after year. That's the thing I think that stands well above all the other things that we might want. And for me, I think it's the core of a good marriage and really it's the core of any good relationship, isn't it? Think about it. Friendship, business partners, work colleagues, faithfulness is what holds it together. And as we come uh, to Psalm 119 again tonight, the section uh, that we're going to explore together, which begins on page 621, has a wonderful declaration about our God. Have a look at verse 137. Psalm 119, verse 137. The psalmist says, Righteous are you, O Lord. As we consider together why it is that we would devote ourselves to God's word, why it is that we would be lovers of that word, we come, I believe, to the core reason we are to be that way. Our God is righteous. Why is that so important? What does it mean to say that our God is righteous? Well, essentially, I think it means that he's faithful. The very foundation, the very building block upon which good relationships are formed and grow and are nurtured. Being faithful is our God's very nature. The word uh, there in verse 137, righteous, is uh, I think our NIV's clumsy attempt to translate a very rich Hebrew word, a word that sort of spins off into all sorts of English words, straight, right, honest. Our God is utterly consistent. You know, different translations of the Bible get a bit closer to the word with, with words like right and fair and even. However, as, as is sometimes the case, the English language can't convey the full depth of what one Hebrew word is saying. This wonderful testimony about our God in verse 137. You see, our God is not straight or right or correct like a ruler is or a spirit level is. No, it's much more than that. The Hebrew is saying something very wonderful about who our God is and about what he does. Firstly, what it says about who he is. You see, at the heart of this word righteous is relationship. The word makes no sense outside of relationship. To say our God is righteous is to say he is righteous in his relationships. It's a describing word. It tells us that our God loves relationships and it tells us the sort of relationships he has. As we go on in this passage from verse 137 onwards, we get three little facets of this righteousness that show us what it means, this wonderful testimony about our God. Have a look at uh, verse 47 and verse 76 of Psalm 119. Again and again throughout this psalm, the psalmist tells us that our God is consistently and eternally loving. That's part of his righteousness. He loves and so he wants relationship. That is his nature. Second facet you see there in verse 151. Our God is consistently 
and eternally near. Not only does he love and desire relationship, he is near so he can relate. And then verse 156. Our God is consistently and eternally compassionate. Not only does he want relationship, not only can he relate, he knows how desperately we need relationship with him. And so verse 137 tells us who he is. He is righteous, loving, near, compassionate. But it also tells us what he does in those relationships. He is faithful. Our God is a promise keeper. He makes promises and then he delivers on them. The one who is righteous, the one who is utterly faithful, who is kind and good, who wants relationship with us, who can relate, who knows we need it, acts in accordance with that nature. He promises and then he makes good on that promise. And he does it through one simple, wonderful act. He speaks. In this one action, this relational act towards us that we've been exploring in these recent weeks as we've explored what it means to be a lover of God's word, we see what God is doing when we read his Bible. Are you, you, are you aware of what you have in your hands right now if you have the Bible open? Are you aware when uh, you're sitting in your room on your own or with, with other Christians or, or on the bus or on the computer screen as you read God's word, what is happening? God is entering relationship with you. His righteous act towards you, his relationship act towards you, he speaks to you. He speaks with a view to relationship and his word expresses perfectly who he is. Nothing is lost in translation. It is as the psalmist says in verse 137. First of all he says, Righteous are you, O Lord. And then I think a better translation he says, And your words are righteous. It's a perfect translation of who he is. And as we read through the words of scripture in Psalm 119 verse 137 onwards, As it was read out earlier, did you see what our God was saying to us as he entered relationship to us, as we heard his word? He promised relationship. He spoke it and then he delivered it. He promised a promise that is trustworthy and forever, says 138. And right at the heart of the promise, it would have been hard to miss all the way through this passage, it keeps repeating, his promise is a promise of rescue, of help, of salvation. How does he achieve all this? One simple act. He speaks. But more than just speaking, and this blew my mind and my heart away this week as I was reading these verses, he does it so simply. His revolutionary act to bring about relationship with us, you know what he does? He speaks the truth. So simple. God tells the truth. Would you expect anything else? Given that God is righteous, that he is faithful and true, and given that his word is a perfect revelation of who he is, it shouldn't surprise us that when he speaks, he speaks the truth. But God's reason for speaking the truth is even more than that. He speaks the truth not just because it is his nature to do so, he speaks it because he is kind and good. Because in the words of verse 156, his compassion 
is great because he knows our fundamental problem is that we have suppressed and exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Romans chapter 1, speaking of this situation, speaking of the human predicament, says this, We suppress the truth since what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. For although we knew God, we neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. But our thinking became futile and our foolish hearts were darkened. Although we claimed to be wise, we became fools. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. God knows the human problem. Human nature since the fall has has been to suppress the truth about our God, our glorious and good creator. That's our default mechanism. And the truth is that he is wholly inclined to our good and yet we deny that truth. We've exchanged that truth about our great and wonderful God for the lie that says I'm in charge. I rather than God knows what's good for me. Our God is righteous. He is faithful, loving, near, kind and good. And yet our world suppresses and denies that truth, truth which has been made plain by God. Creation shouts it to this world. His eternal power and his divine nature shout it out and yet our response is to reject the truth. And while this seems a sort of a brave and audacious move, we've uh, usurped God, creation taking over, the reality is far from this. Romans 1 says it is futile. Our planning, our thinking, our scheming, our dreaming, our building, our crafting, all human endeavour ends up in foolishness, says God, a chasing after the wind because we have pulled the very foundation piece out, having suppressed the truth about our God. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, Only a fool does that. And as Romans 1.25 says, We have exchanged that truth of God for a lie. And knowing this, our God who is righteous, who wants relationship, who can and knows that we need relationship, speaks. And in speaking, he reveals the truth about himself again and about us. The truth about us, he tells us from the beginning that we are his creation, fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knows when we sit and when we rise, that he perceives our thoughts from afar. He tells us this in his word that he discerns my going out and my lying down, that he is familiar with all my ways. He tells me the truth about that. His word tells the truth about the mess that we've made of his world. He says that things are not okay, that while our God is righteous amongst us, there is no one who is righteous, not even one, that while our God is loving and seeks relationship. Amongst us there is no one who seeks God. And while our God is near, amongst us all have turned away. While our God is kind and good, amongst us there is no one who does good, not even one, says God. He tells the truth. It's hard to hear, isn't it? But our God is righteous. He is faithful and so he speaks that truth. And into our powerless 
self-made situation. He doesn't just speak the truth about us and leave it there. He speaks the truth about himself as well. As verse 137 of Psalm 119 tells us, God's word is the perfect expression of him in his very nature. It reveals who he is. Nothing is lost. His word reveals, as we've seen, that he is righteous, that although we are faithless, he is faithful. His word reveals that he is kind and good and that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, God acted to rescue us. His word is his promise of relationship spoken and then delivered. God's word is his declaration of who we are and who he is. Having watched us suppress the truth about that, having watched us become darkened in our thinking, blind, says Romans, God tells the truth. Doesn't sound much, does it? But it changes everything. As Psalm 104 verse 1 says, picturing what God is doing here, it says it's like he's wrapped himself in light and he walks into our dark world with the truth, with his word. A word that Psalm 119 verse 130 calls the light of truth. He does this every time he has spoken. Every time he spoke in the past through the prophets that we read in the scriptures. And even in this last days he has spoken his word of truth, his righteous word, his word of salvation ultimately and perfectly in his son Jesus. The word made flesh. Jesus is God's spoken and delivered promise of relationship. Jesus is God's word of rescue. As John 5.24 puts it, Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he will not be condemned for he has crossed over from death to life. And I guess most of us here tonight have the wonderful comfort of knowing that word, trusting that word and having crossed from death to life. What a privilege it is to be amongst those who trust that word. And having believed God's word spoken through his son, we know the power of that word that can move us from sin to freedom, that can move us from death to life. But for us, I think the challenge of Psalm 119 is it shows us that what we've been saved for God's word of promise, his word of rescue, it's not like God's word of salvation merely sort of picks us up like a drowning man and then leaves us dumped on the shore gasping for breath. No, it does much more than that. The word of God is his word of life. In fact, every word he speaks, every true word that comes from God's mouth is so that we might live and have life to the full. Did you hear that in John's Gospel, John 10.10? That's the purpose of God's word, to rescue us and then to give us life again. What Psalm 119 does is it gives us a picture of what life to the full looks like. It shows us the difference between living and existing. This is what it means to live life full throttle. And so what I want to do, just for a few moments now, having sort of established that God's word is his word of truth, his word of promise of salvation, is to see the difference that that word is meant to make in our lives. And what I've done in these last verses of Psalm 119 is I've picked out ten differences that that word makes and that's what I want us to think about for a while. Because as I said, God's 
purpose in speaking to us is not just to rescue us and leave us alone on the shore but to show us how to live and live fully. So let's have a look together at these verses from Psalm 137 onwards. And really these are just things that I've picked out. They are just some of the things that I think are in this rich section of God's word. The first, and I guess this is where we've been all throughout this series, is to live life to the full, is to be a lover of God's word. It's really the key refrain all the way through this long psalm. Verse 140, the psalmist says he loves God's word because the promises in them have been tested completely. Generation after generation they have stood the test. It's a great image, isn't it? Life after life has confronted this word and life after life has been transformed by this word. It has been sufficient for generation after generation and so the psalmist says, I love your word. Verse 159, he says it has given him life and so he loves it. And in 162, he even goes further, he says, finding God's word is like winning the lotto. It's a hard word sometimes, isn't it, to be told the truth by God that things are not okay. But sometimes that's just what we need. News of a terrible problem but also news of a wonderful rescue. And so the psalmist says, I love your word. That's the first thing. The second thing that living life to the full involves is being faithful to that word. Seems obvious, doesn't it? The only way to respond appropriately to the faithfulness that God has shown us is with faithfulness. The appropriate response to a God is righteous, a God who tells us the truth, is to be committed to knowing him who is true. Anybody who has ever been involved in a faithful relationship knows that faithfulness has to be concrete. It's not an abstract idea, is it? And so in recent weeks we've been encouraging each other to be people who make that faithfulness deliberate, who make it concrete, who make it obvious. If you want to be faithful to God's word then you need to start reading it if you're not reading it. And if you're struggling to be regular with that then you need to work out a way to make that happen. The space, the time, the location, everything needs to be planned. Be deliberate in being faithful to God's word. Thirdly, be a learner of God's word, be a student of it. One of the things I love about this psalm is it's clear all the way through the psalm that when it comes to God's word, this psalmist is a heavy hitter. He is a big time devotee of God's word and it's easy to sort of read it and think, oh, I fall so short of what he's saying. Have a look at verse 97. I was reading this uh, this week. And it sort of makes you feel a bit, uh, a bit guilty. He says, all day long I meditate on God's word. I struggle with half an hour. And he's doing it all day long. And yet for all his devotion, and yet for his claim that he can say he chews over God's word all day, he prays again and again in this psalm that God would teach him this word. He's still a student. He's still a learner. That he would understand I don't know about you, but that's one of the encouraging things that I've experienced over the years as a Christian to to, to meet some older saints who have year in, year out been devoted to God's word, read it regularly, met with others to chat about it and are still learning from that word. 
That's what we have here in the psalmist. You see, one who knows God's word is faithful, who knows God's word is his promise to us, his word of rescue, knows that the absolute best way to live is to be a learner of that word. You see, the more you learn from his word, the more you are taught by his grace. Colossians 1.6, a great verse that tells us that what we are learning here is not, not meaningless stuff, not abstract stuff, but we are learning about God's grace. If you're struggling to understand God's grace, if you're struggling to be sure of his grace, of his forgiveness, the Bible's answer is to get into his word. In Philippians 4 we're told the more we fill our mind with the things of the word, things that Philippians 4 tells us are true and noble and right and pure and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, the more we fill our lives with those things, our minds, our hearts, the more at peace we will be, says Philippians 4. There's a lot of things that we fill our mind with, aren't there? All sorts of things that in and of themselves aren't particularly bad. Uh, The Argus catalogue, spent some time reading that uh, this week. Great read, a real page turner. But uh, to be honest, as you look through that list in Philippians 4, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, noble, I'm not sure many of the products of Argus fit into that category. They're great, useful, interesting. Or watching CSI, I'm a a devotee of CSI, I could watch endless episodes of it, even though they're all really the same, every single episode. Spend hours watching that. It's not going to do much, is it? Who wants to be a millionaire? The Bible's answer to this is rubbish in, rubbish out. Nothing hugely bad in any of these things, but the Bible says if if you want to actually have your life transformed, if you want to actually know the peace that God has on offer, then start filling your heart and your mind with his word, the word of his promise. As Ephesians 4 puts it, the, uh, the, the results of doing this are breathtaking. Ephesians 4 says, This book is the way you learnt Christ. Assuming that you heard about him, you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And being taught God's word of truth, you have been taught to put off the old self, which belongs to the former way of life, and you have been taught by this word to be renewed in the spirit, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. Do you see what this word of God does? Our God is righteous. His word is righteous. Those who fill their hearts and minds with it will be made righteous by him. What a promise. You see, God's word doesn't provide us with information. It provides transformation for our lives. If you want to be a a worker on on your godliness, if you're struggling with godliness in some areas, I'm pretty sure all of us fit into that category, then be a learner. Be a student of God's word. A fourth thing, uh, someone who lives life to the full is someone who obeys God's word. Second last verse of the psalm, Psalm, uh, verse 175 says, the one who has heard God's word, who knows that life is about honouring the speaker of that word, the Lord who is righteous. 
If you hear God's word, then honour him by obeying that word. That's the picture of the psalmist here. In, in verse 173 he says, I have chosen your word. There's all sorts of paths that we could take in life, all sorts of ways forward, ways to be guided. The psalmist says, if you want to walk in truth, then obey God's word. Trust him. Now, if you're struggling to obey God's word or, or at least a part of that word, let me encourage you with two things that you need to consider. If you are a Christian, then what God expects of you is faithfulness. And he wants that because that is where life to the full is found. Let me give you an example. I remember chatting to a couple uh, back in Australia uh, at a church that I was at who uh, had been dating since their late teens. Uh, they, they dated for about eight years and they were about to get married. They were, they were going to get married in about two months. And uh, randomly in the process of our conversation it became clear that for the majority of the years that they'd been dating they'd been having sex with each other, keen Christians but they got themselves to the point where it was just too hard not to. And what did it matter anyway? They'd never been out with anyone else. They were getting married. It was only two months beforehand. What does it matter? No harm. We're monogamous. Not to God they weren't. Not to his word. And I remember saying to them, what hope do you have of being faithful to each other if you cannot be faithful to God. Obedience to God's word is not a small thing. God wants us to have life to the full. It's what he expects of us. And the second reason, the second thing you need to consider if you're struggling with obedience to God's word in whatever area it might be is to realise why the psalmist obeys God's word. You see it there in verse 168. He says, all my ways are known to you, God. The one we are to obey knows everything about us. Everything about us is open before him, the ins and the outs. And even more than that, he is righteous and he is near and he is compassionate. So trust him. He knows you. He knows what's best for you. Trust him. To live life to the full is to be honest also about ourselves. And some of these we'll just skim over. But uh, have you ever noticed that uh, before we pray a prayer of confession uh, in church together, one of the verses that we often say to each other is 1 John 1 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A lover of God's word is honest about themselves before him. But also a lover of God's word is aware of who he is in Christ. The very next verse, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To live life to the full is to know, to be honest about yourself but also to be aware of what God has done for you in Christ. Let me finish uh, with three quick ones. To live life to the full when it comes to God's word is to be passionate for that word and for seeing people trust it. Have a look at verse 139. The psalmist says, My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Another part of the psalm, he says, I hate faithfulness, faithlessness. I hate disobedience. 
to your word. And it seems quite extreme, doesn't it? To hate faithlessness, to hate disobedience. But to respond rightly to God's trustworthy and true word is to be passionate about seeing that word obeyed. To seeing the truth of that word honoured. To not be okay when it is rejected by our peers and family. To not be okay when it is maligned in the public square or reshaped or reinterpreted or repackaged or refried by our brothers and sisters. And not because we're pedants. No, because we know why God has spoken the truth. It is his word of rescue. We are to be zealous about God's truth because we know that is where life is found. That is where God's rescue is found. Eighth, to be a lover of God's word, to live life to the full when it comes to God's word is to be fearless because of that word. Have a look at verses 150 and 151. The psalmist says, Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, O Lord, and all your commands are true. You see, the one who hears and trusts God's word, who knows that he speaks the truth, has nothing to fear from man. As God says in Hebrews 13, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so I say with confidence, The Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? A lover of God's word is fearless in the world. And finally, a lover of God's word, someone who lives life to the full, clings to that word no matter what. Because that's what sheep do. I love how this psalm ends. Have a look. If you've uh, got nothing, seen nothing else in these last few verses of Psalm 19, have a look at verse 176. In some ways the ending of the psalm is uh, unexpected. For some 175 verses up to this point we've had this picture of a vibrant, healthy, growing, mature attitude to God's word. He's our model for what it, how, the attitude we're to have to the Bible. This is what it looks like to love God's word and yet, as he ends the psalm, he does so in a somewhat fragile way. Verse 176, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. We've seen what life to the full looks like. It is the one who loves God's word, who is committed to it, a learner, obedient, honest, aware, passionate, fearless, peaceful. But above all, we get the nub of it here in the last verse. It is to know God has sought us out like a shepherd does a stray sheep. That we have heard that voice, the voice of the good shepherd, and our job is simple. Follow. Follow his voice. The Bible knows and Psalm 119 shows us that there are a lot of things that can pull us away from that voice. Great joys and great sadnesses. But the Christian answer to whatever life throws at us is very simple but it's not glib. Yet you are near, O Lord, and your commands are true, says the psalmist. Whatever comes, he heeds the voice of the shepherd. One of uh, the aspects of my job uh, is to conduct funerals. And I've got to be honest, uh, to tell you the truth, I hate them. 
And why not? What's to love? Death is no friend of ours. But that's where you see the sheer power of this word, the word of God. I remember standing uh, recently in a, in a chapel, uh, not many people there. But to be able to stand there amongst people in the deepest possible pain, to stand there before blank faces and silent mouths and to be able to speak God's eternal word into that situation, his trustworthy word, is a wonderful thing. Every time I walk into a funeral service, I remember how powerless I feel but how wonderful God's words are. Because as is often said at a funeral, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your word is righteous. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, you speak. We thank you that you are a God who uh, loves relationship. You are a God who can relate because you are near and that you are a God of deep compassion and so you know that this world's greatest need is to be in relationship with you. So Father, we thank you that you have spoken and that you do speak.